In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, for missionaries, the phrase, the bread of life, has always presented something of a problem. It's been a notoriously tough verse to translate, especially to Asian cultures. See, bread has traditionally been the foundation of our diet, the sort of Western diet and the Middle Eastern one as well, but rice is the foundation of the Asian diet. So do we then say, I am the rice of life? Uh, If alternately, do you say, then I am the beans of life? I've noticed um, since the last time I spoke about this passage, I was counting up the number of uh, mixed grain bowl uh, eateries that have opened up in Charlottesville. Uh, We got roots, chopped, kava, meza, mahana fresh, citizen bowl, autos, and even chipotle sort of counts. And at one of these places, maybe you've, you've been there, I'm sure you have, um, but you choose a foundation. Usually you go in there, you say, I want a bowl, and they ask you, well, what do you want as the foundation? Uh, do you want uh, grains? And if you want grains, do you want white rice? Do you want brown rice? Do you want lentils? And now do you want right rice, which I think is some sort of cauliflower thing? Or do you want greens? And if you do want greens, do you want arugula? Do you want kale? Do you want spinach? Do you want romaine? Or do you want some mixture of all of this stuff? It's a lot of choices. But it's, it's a choice for the foundation of the bowl upon which the rest of it is built. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the bread of life? Uh, he says this just after feeding the, the 5,000. What he's really saying is, I am the foundation of, uh, of life. I'm the foundation of diet and therefore life. But let's break that down. First, the foundation. Well, let's think about it not in terms of a bowl. Let's think about it in terms of, a, of, of, of other types of food. You know, I've just come back from being in the north on a bit of a beach vacation, and I got to stop in my favorite place for pizza, which is in New Haven, Connecticut. They have crust there that is, I guess it's because of the, there's the exact right amount of pollution in the water. So uh, the crust is just, you know, it's this happy accident that it becomes so tasty. But um, if you think about it in terms of the passage, you know, a pizza without a, a crust is just a pile of toppings. You couldn't even identify it as a pizza. Well, perhaps Christ is saying that a life without God is like a sandwich without bread, a pizza without crust. It is lacking a foundation. It cannot hold together. And it doesn't. You know, I often wonder if that's what we're seeing in our culture right now, a sense that something is amiss, something is wrong, but there's no shared metaphysic from which to derive values and therefore solutions. It's like everyone's eating different bread and acting like it's the same and not really understanding that, no, you've got rye and you've got whole wheat and you've got sunflower, honey, rosemary, Cheddar. Um, That's a topic for another sermon. But you have the foundation, and next you have the foundation of life. So bread, in this case, would be necessary for life, for survival. It's, it's, and therefore, it's not a question of, of if you have a foundation, but what is your foundation? You know, something serves as your foundation in life, that which you are relying on for sustenance, in fact, to live. And for most of us, if we're honest, maybe we check the God box, but the actual foundation of our life is something different. Now, this is a, a, a one of the great insights of, of the Bible and of many religions, in fact, that everyone is 
religious. It just, we just differ in how we're religious. That everyone worships. There is no such thing as not worshiping. The great modern text on this truth comes from writer David Foster Wallace, who uh, he was speaking about it in a, uh, in a graduation speech and said, there is no such thing as not worshiping. I was reminded of that this week. The New York Times Magazine put out a big article about Silicon Valley and God. Can Silicon Valley and its search for artificial intelligence, can it, can it somehow uh, mesh with spirituality in any meaningful way? And Linda Kinsler was writing, and she said, she said she noticed that Silicon Valley is rife with its own doctrines. There are rationalists, the techno-utopians, and the militant atheists. Many technologists seem to prefer to consecrate their own religions rather than ascribe to the old ones, discarding thousands of years of humanistic reasoning and debate along the way. Many of those beliefs, she writes, such as that advanced artificial intelligence could destroy the known world, or that humanity is destined to colonize Mars, are no less leaps of faith than believing in a kind and loving God. A remarkable thing to read in the New York Times. What she's saying is that even uh, people who would say that they don't have much of a foundation in God are still, are still coming at it with some sort of religious, worshipful, uh, metaphysical foundation. The pandemic, of course, has revealed to many of us what our actual foundation was, our actual functioning bread of life. Uh, you know, suffering has a way of doing this, um, uh, of showing us what we're looking to for meaning or to satisfy our hunger. So if the bread of your life is a, is a certain position at your job or a, or a relationship or a prestigious last name or a bank account, you name it, well, then you will experience pain whenever and wherever that foundation is assaulted or under threat, as inevitably will be. People who don't know who they are, if they don't, aren't garnering respect in the office, for example, or even, let's say, magically, excuse me, um, uh, rhetorically, uh, clergy who preach to empty uh, 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 sanctuaries, not really knowing who they are if no one's there. I joke, but uh, when we lose something that we believed was crucial to our existence and value, maybe even something we felt we deserved, we will become embittered and despondent. You know, this is why the Olympics, which are going on right now, are such great drama, because the foundation of people's lives, and that's to become an Olympian, you have to make your sport the foundation of your life. It is under assault, and it is either vindicated, or in most cases, it is destroyed. And that makes for high drama. And we love to see the glory that results when someone wins. But we're also interested in the comeback stories, as well as the unlikely defeats, the underdogs. It's part of the reason why, by the way, why Jesus encountered such difficulty. He was constantly threatening people's, uh, the foundation of their lives by exposing how flimsy these things actually were. To put it in a more pithy way, you could say that suffering itself does not rob us of joy. Idolatry does. Because that's what we're talking about here. That's the biblical word. Back to David Foster Wallace, he, he, he actually... He says the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's your foundation, if that's your bread, literally, 
If they are where you go to tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel like you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power or influence, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need to ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Now, in Wallace's uh, terminology, uh, it correlates to our passage, and worship correlates to hunger. You know, so much of life is, 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 is defined by hunger. What are you hungry for is the thing that you're worshiping. And just as he's not, Jesus is not saying he's literal bread, the hunger he's referring to isn't necessarily physical hunger. What do we know about hunger, though? We know that it's new every day. Even after I inhaled those New Haven pizzas, a few days later, I was thinking about going back. So sure, there's hunger for food, but there's also hunger for possessions, for knowledge. There's hunger for power, for influence. There's hunger for security, for stability, for wisdom, and yes, hunger for love. As with anything, when you become starved of these uh, appetites, you often become desperate. Even if we know that no matter how much we get, it doesn't satisfy. There is a temptation, a very real temptation to believe in what some people call the arrival fallacy. That once you reach a certain station in life with certain people, you get certain possessions or certain accomplishments, well then you you will reach satisfaction, capital S. Of course, this is nothing more than a mirage, my friend writes. When we climb up to our goal's peak, we look out from its promising vista only to see a higher mountain out in the distance. Now, I'm noticing, by the way, in our particular moment that some of us have been subsiding on a diet of nothing but fear. So much so that as life returns to uh, its rhythm, it feels a little bit like we're some of us need to invent new things to be afraid of, lest we starve. Or we've been subsisting on a diet of judgment. And now that I have no special knowledge to lord over that person, I need to find new things with which to stand over my neighbors. Well, Jesus recognizes that the experience of hunger is at the core of being alive. But not only that... He claims to be the bread of life itself. But not a bread like other foundations, other things we may worship and hunger for, which crumble and go stale. He says, whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Jesus is the equivalent of one of those ultra-dense German loafs that could sort of sink to the bottom of the ocean. How can he say that? How can, how can we trust that? How can, how can A lot of people promise things like that. How can we trust that Jesus actually is who he says he is? Well, let's take the image one step further before we end. Because bread is something that we consume. In eating bread, we destroy it. But we are nourished and we live while it ceases to. Well, so it is with Christ the one who was destroyed so that you and I might live. The 
writer Susan Sontag once put it this way. She said, being in love means being willing to ruin yourself for the other person. Being in love means being willing to ruin yourself for the other person. Well, Jesus was willing, and not only willing, but was ruined for your sake. And he was raised in accordance with the love of God, which is as inexhaustible as our hunger for it. And so where are you hungry today? What sort of bread are you feasting on? I might encourage you to choose God. Feast on the bread of life. But I know, if you're like me, that tends to be the last place you go unless you're absolutely starving. So if you're not starving, and maybe you are, well, if you're not, hear the good news that God has chosen you, that his blood is now the foundation of your forgiveness, his resurrection the foundation of your hope, and his love a constant and sustaining diet of grace. Amen.